Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw and I'm really excited to have with me today a really fantastic guest all the way from Denmark who is really just a world expert on hyperoxia and listeners will know it is a topic near and dear to my heart. We're going to talk about two recent studies, articles that um, Dr. Mayhoff published uh, and in fact that is my guest Christian Mayhoff uh, who as many of you will know is just a, a prolific researcher when it comes to many things including hyperoxia. He's the head of research and an associate research professor in the Department of Anesthesia and Intensive Care in Copenhagen University Hospital in Copenhagen, Denmark and he's coming to us all the way from there. Really exciting to have him. As I said he's got two trials. One the VIXI trial that was published in Anesthesiology recently um, that looked at and we'll talk about the details, but they looked at hyperoxia in the operating room. And then a second coming out, uh, or that just recently came out in ANA, that looked at uh, the, some data retrospectively. And we'll talk about how the findings of those two articles are, are actually quite different. Quickly, before we jump in, remember, you can get CME if you need it by going to ACRAC.com and clicking on the link in the show notes. That fantastic CME opportunity is provided by CMEFI. So go check it out if you need some CME. And now, Dr. Christian Mayhoff, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you very much for being a part of the show. I really look forward to it. And um, I'm happy you also uh, see uh, oxygen use and anesthesia and care as an um, um, important aspect of, uh, of your interest. I, I definitely share that, and I've been working for, for that for the last uh, 15 years or more. Fantastic. Well, thank you for the work you've done and, and that you continue to do. Let's um, start just with you. Tell the audience a little about you, as you said, you know, what you, what you do now, what your day-to-day is, and, and how you got where you are. Thank you. Yeah, so today I'm head of research at the Department of Anesthesia and Intensive Care at Bishop Hospital, that's the general hospital for the Copenhagen area. And um, apart from my research time, which is always uh, full-time plus more, then I do uh, on-calls and um, uh, work. Uh, daily at uh, both the operation uh, room and uh, in the ICU. So uh, 
So the Danish uh, way of being an anesthesiology specialist is actually uh, both taking care of the ICU patient as well as uh, doing uh, anesthesia in, in your so um, we have a lot of um, emergency medical conditions and a lot of patients with uh, cardiopulmonary conditions undergoing rather large surgery. And that's why I find it very important to uh, care for these patients and reduce the uh, frequency of cardiac and pulmonary complications. Fantastic. And, you know, just out of curiosity, let me ask you, um, is it true that in a lot of Europe and, and potentially in Denmark too, are all anesthesiologists basically also do intensive care? It's kind of one in the same, or you don't, do you do a separate training for intensive care or it's just all part of the same training? The specialty is combined. And during specialty training, you go to both the OR and the ICU. So um, I find that as a great advantage because some of the intensive care treatment of patients and improving their organ function that is very relevant being in the OR for, uh, for di- difficult cases to optimize the patient and, and care for them. And also, uh, likewise, uh, being specialist in uh, general anesthesia, some advances in, in the ICU. So that's all. And then, um, of course, after specialty training, that uh, we will uh, subspecialize in, the, in, in each uh, subspecialty. But we have the same... Uh, conference in the morning and, and share uh, on calls. Okay, so there is a additional, like a fellowship in critical care for those who want to really specialize in it. Okay. okay, okay. And are the ICUs in Denmark mostly staffed with anesthesiologists or are there also, you know, medical trained, uh, like pulmonary critical care um, through, a, through a medicine residency? Do, do they work in ICUs there as well? The ICUs are, in fact, a little different from uh, the North American um, way of having ICUs. Uh, so they're staffed only by specialists in uh, anesthesiology and uh, intensive care medicine. We, of course, have um, uh, consultants from other specialties uh, looking after their patients uh, whenever we, we call for them. The nursing staff are also... Um, specialty trained for uh, intensive care so um, so it's a it's a good uh, cross uh, uh, cross-sectoral collaboration also patients in the ICU are quite more uh, sick because uh, ICU beds are very expensive and being a a public uh, healthcare system then it's um, being cut down so for example uh, my hospital, we have 12 ICU beds, which is a, a fairly large um, intensive care uh, unit in the, in a Danish setting. Great. So, what got you interested in hyperoxia specifically? And, and you've you've clearly done some trials in the past, and now have this new uh, Vixi trial out. What led you to decide to spend a lot of your your research time and focus on this on this topic? But thanks. It's really a great question because. Um, I'm really fascinated by the academic dilemma. Is this intervention that we give to all of our patients, is it really beneficial or is it in fact harmful, but we cannot really recognize when harms occur. So when I first heard of uh, the two first perioperative trials of high oxygen concentration versus normal oxygen concentration, which was published in 
2000 and 2004 by uh, Greif and uh, Pryor. Uh, these trials showed fundamentally different results. First trial, uh, which I think was a great trial, which really put the research on the uh, international agenda, showed that the frequency of postoperative surgical site infection could be cut by 50% by increasing the FiO2 to 0.80 versus 0.30. And that was then followed by the prior trial showing a doubled surgical site infection risk in the 80% group, which was uh, really shocking to the community, and that, that got me fascinated right away. I mean, how often does that happen, right? That just a few years apart, you have not just slightly differing results, but like as far apart as you could get, right? I mean, one showing a protection and one showing a, a vast harm. It's so interesting, and I think so illustrative of this particular issue where the data is kind of all over the map. But I can see how that would get you interested. And so let's talk about the VIXI trial specifically. What what led you to say, okay, I want to ask this specific question in this population? Yeah, so the last uh, couple of years, I've been more and more interested in uh, postoperative myocardial injury. And I've been so fortunate to participate in the large global studies, such as the post 2 trial, post 3 trial, that investigated postoperative myocardial injury as assessed by routine postoperative troponin surveillance. And by measuring troponins, you identify not only the symptomatic cases of myocardial infarction, but you also detect a very large amount of prognostically relevant cases of myocardial injury, other being myocardial infarction that are, in fact, asymptomatic because the pain is having the patient is having pain elsewhere or being um, deprived by opioids or having an easier uh, taking away chest pain. And um, also uh, cases of uh, myocardial injury, which is troponin elevations that has no other extracardial cause than being a damage to the heart. And the numbers, uh, as illustrated by some of the previous uh, work from uh, primarily the Population Health Research Institute in Canada, uh, shows that a case of myocardial injury after non-cardiac surgery is, in fact, associated with a significant increase of 30-day mortality. That got me fascinated because the intervention of oxygen opposed to what most anesthesiologists expect, uh, they would expect that the oxygen supply to the heart increases, but in fact, oxygen has some effects that may be harmful to the heart, such as coronary vasoconstriction and reduction of coronary artery blood flow. Yeah, I, I just find that fascinating. And I think you're exactly on to a key point here, which is that most people, for, for good reason, think, and even, even doctors, as you say, think that giving supplemental oxygen will, you know, it's as clear as day. You give supplemental oxygen, that will obviously give more oxygen to the heart, the brain, and everything else. But that, because it seems like it should, you put more in, it, it should get there. But, but that's so key, right, is that 
through the free radical, uh, you know, interactions with nitric oxide, you actually end up with vasoconstriction and deliver less. You, even if you get a little bit more oxygen in the blood, you deliver less oxygen to the tissue. And so that's why, for example, the uh, AVOID trial, right, showed, uh, or at least we think that's why the AVOID trial showed uh, worse outcomes in patients with STEMI who got oxygen, right? Yeah, exactly. And um, there's a great controversy of that. And um, what also was a um, trigger for um, my interest in looking at myocardial injury in response to oxygen fraction during general anesthesia was that actually during my PhD thesis, I conducted a Danish national trial of oxygen and the frequency of post-operative surgical site infection. And that trial, the proxy trial, which was published in 2009, actually showed no difference in surgical site infection. But within 30 days, we looked at sort of the 30-day mortality data and um, considered, well, why not do a long-term follow-up of mortality uh, after these uh, patients that underwent the major abdominal surgery. These were all uh, laparotomy uh, patients, 1,400 patients undergoing laparotomy surgery. And in fact, the long-term follow-up study found a significantly increased risk of mortality at the follow-up time of two and a half years after surgery. That sort of triggered our minds to to look at the different organ systems in which we affect during surgery, could it really be true that the oxygen intervention effect, which was given during surgery and for two hours after surgery, that combined up to five hours in total, could these uh, few, few hours, five hours with excess oxygen administration, could it really affect the patient on the long term? And then we looked at different uh, risks that could be uh, collected in the Danish National Patient uh, Registers. We have a very, very thorough follow-up in the uh, Danish Kingdom of uh, the National uh, Patient ID, in which we uh, can allocate all outcomes occurring in the US after surgery. So we follow up on the frequency of myocardial infarction. And although the number of events were luckily very, very few, there was in fact a significantly increased number of myocardial infarction patients given 80% oxygen. But as you know, did a post hoc observational study that was not pre-planned. Uh, it was conducted many years after very few events. We couldn't really conclude with any great uh, certainty about the uh, benefit or harm with the oxygen on the myocardium. That was why we conducted the LEADS trial. Yeah. And so, you know, I want to just clarify for listeners, because we've talked about a few different things. The original thought, right, that you mentioned those those initial kind of 2000, 2004 trial looked at surgical site infection. And I, I, even though the World Health Organization still, I think, has a recommendation, or now it's it's been downgraded from recommendation to, uh, you know, suggestion, but I think yeah. they still have a suggestion that it's better to use 80% oxygen to prevent surgical site infection. But I think that's been pretty debunked, right? I, I think the understanding is that's probably not actually well supported by the evidence that uh, that higher levels of oxygen do reduce surgical site infection. Is that fair to say? 
That's best to say, in my opinion, and I will share that view with uh, many other research groups around uh, the globe. It's very difficult to provide guidelines for one benefit uh, if the power to exclude detrimental side effects is uh, so reduced as it is. So, uh, in order to see the difficulty in um, in providing such guidelines for, from the WHO, and I think the CDC has in fact adopted that uh, guideline, which is now a suggestion. Um, the power to see cases and speak about the difference for surgical side infection, that's much more increased because after major surgery, the frequency of surgical side infection is approximately 20%. And most trials have focused on that. So the power to really see a difference is much increased. However, the potential harms with high oxygen concentrations being respiratory failure, myocardial infarctions, stroke, they occur so rarely that uh, much more data is needed to really exclude a difference and provide a statement that it is really safe to give extra oxygen. Right. Okay. So we've, we've kind of moved on in a way from thinking about or looking at trials of surgical site infection to looking at the potential negative effects, like you just said, the effects on the heart, as we talked about the AVOID trial and others have looked at the uh, risk of uh, additional damage in a heart that's already been damaged, so patients with STEMI. Um, and there's some mixed data on that. And and what you're trying to look at um, in the VIXI trial is intraoperatively. Is there a uh, risk? Of, and these are patients, we should say, who are not just kind of uh, healthy baseline patients, right? These were patients with risk factors for cardiac disease going in for non-cardiac surgery, right? Right. So in the VIXI trial, we included 600 patients, and uh, they were aged 45 years or greater. They all had a major cardiovascular risk factor or a couple of mammalian risk factors. Um, right. So, and so give some examples of what those risk factors were in these patients. Yeah, it can be a 50-year-old smoker that also has a diabetes. And it could be a 70-year-old male with a stroke. Great. Basically, those patients that we want to take extra good care of. Right. And so you would think, and, and uh, your hypothesis was, that these patients with risk factors for coronary disease who got higher levels of oxygen intraoperatively would do worse. And there's, you know, again, there's good reason to think that we talked about the vasoconstriction, et cetera, that if they're delivering less oxygen to the heart, delivering less blood, they may or should uh, do worse. But uh, what did you find? Yeah, so basically the quick conclusion is that there was no difference. And I can add a few words to that. So Please. Um, of course, having a trial with our Available funding that provided us uh, the opportunity to, to recruit 600 patients. We uh, estimated an outcome of myocardial injury after surgery with troponin measurements. And the uh, troponin measurements, we used the fifth generation the high sensitive troponin T uh, assay. And um, with that, we measured uh, troponin before surgery 
and then on the first, second, and third post-operative day, if patients were still hospitalized at the, that time. And in order to provide a really sensitive outcome of what is the extent of myocardial injury, we then calculated the area under the curve of the troponin concentrations during these days, which was in fact the same procedure as uh, that was done in the AVOID trial you mentioned of STEMI patients. So we had a very uh, sensitive measurement of what was the extent of myocardial injury in these patients. And actually in the two oxygen groups, one giving 80% oxygen during surgery and for two hours after surgery, that was 35 nanograms per liter per day for um, uh, uh, troponin uh, T. And it was in fact, exactly the same concentration for the area under the curve group in the 30% um, oxygen group, also 30, 35 nanograms per liter. That actually gives uh, two very important con conclusions from the Dixie trial. First, the extent of myocardial injury, the average area under the curve for myocardial injury, 35 nanograms per liter per day, that is not a lot. So basically these patients did pretty well. Of course, there was a high frequency of myocardial injury, but to the general extent, um, the magnitude of myocardial injury was, um, was not uh, that high. So our overall frequency of myocardial injury uh, was uh, 23%, but the rest of the patients, they did fine. Another important conclusion is that looking at the median difference between the two groups, we can actually exclude because the trial was really well powered. We have a lot of patients and a lot of measurements. We can actually exclude that there is an opportunity for a large difference in myocardial injury. So that's really important. That adds to the safety effect of increasing oxygen during general surgery. So um, the extent where we can exclude that a major impact on the myocardial injury. Right. And, and as, as we said, this is different than what you expected, certainly different than what I would have expected. So why do you think it didn't matter to these patients that they had presumably less oxygen delivery to the heart, but, but didn't therefore have more, uh, you know, injury to the heart or more or poor, worse outcomes afterwards? Why, why didn't this come out the way we thought it would? I think it's an excellent question. And, and even though we, we take that as the last question and do all the podcasts about uh, why couldn't we uh, detect any difference, uh, I mean, we cannot say it with certainty. We can give some estimates. My best estimate will actually be that uh, oxygen may not be that harmful or that beneficial as we thought. I mean, it's a very intriguing thought that oxygen changes so many things in the body when we do anesthesia and when we admit patients to ICU, but maybe the effect is less than we believe. There may be some effects. It's very well documented that by increasing oxygen, you increase the systemic vascular resistance, you increase the artery resistance, but such a change may not be as powerful as we thought. 
Another way of explaining it is that, in fact, we change something and maybe it's harmful, maybe oxygen provoke some pathophysiological changes that are in fact harmful, but then having a complication after surgery, that's a result of so many interventions, hundreds of different uh, things and therapies that may or may not be beneficial. So uh, another explanation is that the effect of oxygen, even if it is slightly harmful, then it could be moderated by other good interventions um, and then uh, resulting in, in no difference. I think also the uh, the individual treatment of each patient contributes to uh, the uh, outcome of the surgery. Yeah, all really interesting. I have a couple questions. So, do you think there's any chance that the anesthesia itself counteracted the effect of the oxygen? So, the vasodilation from the anesthesia could have uh, counteracted the vasoconstriction from the higher oxygen, and that that kind of canceled it out. Is that possible? That's a likely explanation as well. But, um, in fact, the um, vascular tone in the different organs that we care for during anesthesia, it's not very uh, well described. So what is, in fact, the perfusion at the surgical side? What is the uh, myocardial perfusion in, in all cases? What is the myocardial perfusion below a uh, significant stenosis in some of the coronary arteries. I mean, there are a lot of questions that we do not know um, how uh, they behave during anesthesia. So we do the best we can. We strive to maintain normal physiology and perhaps the effect of anesthesia on the very great, uh, greatly increased vasodilatation, counteraction of a slightly vasoconstriction with oxygen that may be a, a very a minor effect compared to what we do during anesthesia. Right, right. Interesting. So that's a possibility. The other thing I think this is less likely is that, you know, maybe any supplemental oxygen is harmful and that even 30%, which is still super physiologic, was bad enough that 80%, yeah. you know what I mean? I think it's unlikely because it seems like why would 30% and 80% be the same? But, you know, I would probably be very hard to do a trial of 21% versus 80%, but that would be interesting, right? Would be to know if, if it's that, you know, there's something about supplemental oxygen in general that's harmful and that the amount may be less important. I think, again, that, that strikes me as less likely, but it could be. Stay with us. We'll be right back. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. 
every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And we're back to hear whether Dr. Mayhoff thinks just a little bit of supplemental oxygen may cause as much harm as a lot of supplemental oxygen. I, I uh, like that uh, hypothesis as well because, um, again, uh, we shouldn't, although we care for the most important period during a, a surgical treatment, uh, at least in our own minds, then we must also recognize that uh, it's not only the maintenance oxygen concentration during surgery that is the exposure. Um, a lot of oxygen therapies that um, goes on for uh, even uh, the 80% oxygen group and the 30% oxygen group that is similar in all trials. And all trials have actually used uh, pre-oxygenation with 100% oxygen, which I uh, firmly believe is the correct way to do pre-oxygenation. And most trials, including the VIXI trial, use post-oxygenation with 80% oxygen for both groups. Then there is the transport between the OR and the PACU. Different to discriminate with oxygen concentrations there. Of course, the intervention continues in the PACU, but then after PACU, there, there may be uh, also exposures to oxygen in the general wards, which we, uh, at least in the VIXI trial, we hadn't uh, counted for that. Uh, that may be uh, quite a lot of oxygen given, uh, although at, at lower if I choose, but it's for a very long time, uh, not hours, but several days. Right. Yeah, so interesting. I mean, because when you look at the AVOID trial, you know, in other trials that have looked at, for example, uh, uh, patients coming into the emergency room with STEMI, they're, they're A, not under anesthesia, right? They're, they're awake. And B, they're not getting 100% oxygen because they, we're talking about a nasal cannula, right? They're getting maybe 30%. So it is interesting to wonder if, you know, there's something different about being under anesthesia. There's something different about, a, you know, a small amount of oxygen versus a large amount. All this is really interesting stuff. You mentioned intubation, so pre-oxygenation. And people ask me that too. And I always say the same thing, which is that I think the benefits of, of having a longer time to, to get that breathing tube in are probably outweigh any risk from a, you know, two minutes of, of high levels of oxygen, though we don't know that, but it seems like it makes sense. The other question people ask is extubation. So in general, um, do you, I guess I have two questions. And first, let's start with the VIXI trial. Were the patients in the 30% group extubated on 30% oxygen or was it turned up uh, for extubation? That was increased uh, for um, before extubation. So, um, so 80% oxygen in, in both groups. And that is uh, what we consider the most safe way of uh, extubating patients to also give a, an increased apnea time after extubation. And I, I think this is a fascinating point too, because I would say that in my experience, almost all practitioners that I've ever observed extubate on 100% oxygen. And I don't. I like to extubate on about 80%, like you said. And the argument there is that having some nitrogen in there will prevent absorption atelectasis or at least help attenuate it. Is that also your practice? Totally, yeah. And I fully agree. I mean, the reason why I would recommend pre-oxygenation with 100% oxygen, that's because we, we know that that results in resorption atelectasis. 
Um, and the resorption at Alexis is also greater with 100% oxygen than 80% oxygen. However, all these at Alexis's, they will and can be counteracted during general anesthesia of the positive pressure ventilation. If we just add a, add a little heap or uh, do some ventilation after uh, uh, intertracheal intubation, it will go away or at least be uh, normalized. But after extubation, it requires um, a, a more active patient to remove uh, absorption atelectasis. And uh, we uh, do not, uh, at least not in Denmark, we do not routinely provide CPAP to all patients in the PACU. So that requires a patient being really awake and being able to uh, eliminate the uh, atelectasis themselves. Yeah, I completely agree. That makes makes a ton of sense to me. So the the final piece is that let's just assume for a second, and this may not be true, but let's say that that your trial suggests that people who are have risk factors for cardiac disease, it doesn't seem to matter whether they get higher levels of oxygen or not intraoperatively. But maybe somebody who actually has an intraoperative MI which is really rare, right? So, you know, clearly not something that would be easy to study, but someone who actually has a, and I mean a STEMI, not a cardiac injury, but I'm talking about a, a ST elevation MI intraoperatively. Maybe they would do worse with higher levels of oxygen, but that would be very hard to know, right? When you look at people coming into the emergency department with STEMI, we think they probably do worse with higher levels of oxygen. But when, you, when you're looking intraoperatively, it's really hard to look at people having intraoperative STEMIs, right? It's just you need an enormous number of patients to, to do that trial. So it's possible that even if for kind of all comers, it doesn't matter, maybe for someone who is actually going to have a STEMI, it might matter. Does that seem reasonable? I think it's a very interesting thing to, uh, to uh, do more research. And, and uh, the intriguing part is also to recognize when does a myocardial infection actually occur uh, during or after surgery? So the numbers are actually rather high during non-cardiac surgery because so many of the, the uh, cases of myocardial infections are asymptomatic. So I would believe that it's not that rare that a case of myocardial infection starts during uh, surgery. However, our way of diagnosing it is uh, is very limited. So um, it could be a hypothesis that uh, these patients could uh, do worse with the high concentration oxygen drink. Okay. On the other hand, we must also recognize that this is a really uh, good indication for increasing the oxygen fraction because it also promotes some other effects uh, during anesthesia, such as uh, the risk of lung injury, which may or may not be a concern as well. So uh, I think the routine use of uh, high oxygen concentration is not really warranted. Yeah, I completely agree. All right. So you also um, recently had had another article come out. Um, You looked at the vision study data Tell, me, tell us a little bit about that, what led you to do that, and what did you look at specifically? Yeah. So this was an international uh, collaboration, which uh, we were very happy to, uh, to uh, conduct and analyze data. 
from the vision study, which was actually the study that led to the definition now of myocardial injury after non-cardiac surgery, the MINS diagnosis. So the vision trial was a prospective cohort study measuring troponin after surgery in all patients age 45 or greater having a surgery with an overnight hospital stay. So an unselected cohort of patients having troponin measurements at many, many sites in um, all parts of uh, the world. And uh, we, uh, together with uh, collaborators in Canada, US, in, uh, Hong Kong, Colombia, South Africa, Malaysia, we contacted the sites and we were able to obtain intraoperative FiO2 data from approximately 6,500 patients. That provided, provided a very interesting association between what we then calculated as the median FiO2 during surgery and then the occurrence of MINS after surgery. So MINS was reported on all patients, and we could then calculate an association with the median FIO2 to MINS. So you looked at essentially oxygen, median oxygen exposure with myocardial injury, and what did you find? Yeah, so uh, I must uh, say this really puzzled our minds because the analysis they were being performed while we conducted the Dixit trial. And um, the publication now uh, states that in the, uh, in the vision study, we could see with high power that each 10% increase in intraoperative oxygen concentration it is a 0 0.10 increase in FiO2 that was associated with an increase in the odds of MINS of 1.17. That was a statistically significant increase. So MINS was occurring in higher frequencies and also linearly correlated to the uh, intraoperative FiO2, the highest occurrence of MINS being in the patients having the highest oxygen concentration during surgery. So this is, of course, in direct contradiction to what you found in the, in the VIXI study. So, so how do you put that together? Yeah, of course, it's important to recognize that the vision study analysis of oxygen exposure and MINF, that's observational data. And the VIXI trial, that's a randomized controlled trial. And we know from the hierarchy of evidence that randomized controlled trials has the highest level of evidence. And the reason is that it accounts for unobserved uh, confounding. And um, of course, we know as our general anesthesia practice that we may tend to increase the intraoperative FiO2 if patient is already having a complication during surgery. And that was not for all patients reported in intraoperative events in the vision study, 
So that may be an important confounder in uh, the analysis. On the other hand, the um, intraoperative hemodynamic inhibition study, that seemed to be the same in uh, patients across all uh, different FIO2s. Interesting. So as you said, when we compare randomized control trial to observational data, you know, clearly the randomized control trial is a higher level of evidence. And so what do you think some of the confounders might have been? One obviously would be in the observational data that sicker patients were getting higher levels of oxygen. That sort of seems like a very obvious one. You're concerned about a patient. They're not doing well intraoperatively. Even if the hemodynamics don't seem affected, it may be that, you know, the, the physician was worried about something, the anesthesiologist was worried about something, and so, you know, adjusted the FiO2 higher, or even just that in general, they felt like they were sicker from the get-go and so said, I'm going to run a higher level of oxygen. Does that seem like a, the most likely confounder, or are there others? I think it's definitely the um, most important component to, um, to uh, discuss and, um, and take into account. Of course, we adjusted our findings and the R ratio. I mentioned it adjusted for all measured compounders, uh, being uh, all comorbidity and uh, preoperative uh, risk factors. But unmeasured uh, compounding that clearly uh, is the, uh, the most important. Another explanation I must emphasize is that we also look at the different study sites in the vision uh, study, and we actually uh, we we could not avoid seeing a rather clear difference in intervention effect across study sites. So that actually indicates, in my opinion, that there may be some conditions, as we also mentioned, yet that. Uh, the way we treat patients at different hospitals, different healthcare systems that may impact uh, how much oxygen may or may not be harmful, how much oxygen may or may not be beneficial. Just going back to the situation with the uh, surgical site infection, the um, way oxygen is believed to influence surgical site infection positively is through uh, the bacterial killing by neutrophils. And that requires oxygen dissolved in blood to actually go to the surgical site. And I believe that the perfusion of the surgical site, that may vary rather greatly across different hospital systems, different uh, hospitals, of course, also at a patient level. But the variability in the way we treat patients, uh, that may affect how we see interventions work. Uh, for example, the way we um, control vasopressors and the way we uh, control the volume therapy and blood management, that is also subject to great controversy. Uh, do we keep a very restrictive um, preoperative care or are we more liberal with fluid, for example? So there may be some uh, hospital settings or site settings that uh, impact the outcome as well. And I know that uh, these two trials we've conducted here, it will not be the last trials about oxygen and definitely some, some more to be done. 
Yeah, it's so interesting. I that I love that you pointed that out, the difference in sites. And you could imagine, for example, one thing that comes to mind would be if one site preferentially used phenylephrine as a presser, where another used norepinephrine, you could easily imagine the decreased perfusion from phenylephrine would maybe affect the the how the concentration of oxygen would play a role compared to the norepinephrine, which can increase cardiac output and potentially, at, depending on, of course, the dose, increase perfusion. You may actually have a difference in perfusion to that surgical site, and that could lead to a difference in surgical site infection. And the same could be true for the heart, right? An increase in cardiac output versus a decrease in cardiac output could affect the delivery of oxygen to the heart. And that's separate, but could interact with the FiO2. So that that is, I think, really, really interesting to think about. Exactly, I totally agree, and that's uh, what I think is really interesting uh, for uh, us being anesthesiologists to really interact between the clinical care and observations in the OR and then the research setting in which we uh, can strive to clarify these questions. And I think with the great amount of research being done about oxygen therapy during surgery. I think it's a highly needed approach to really clarify the benefit and harms of interventions we perform every day. And in fact, just looking at it uh, sort of from an opposite angle, what if we actually introduced oxygen as a new medical drug? What would be the requirements to in fact give oxygen to patients, give supplemental oxygen to patients, what would the FDA or the uh, EMEA in Europe, what would they really require of trials in order to approve this new uh, drug? Uh, at least for uh, clinical research in, in Denmark and EU, uh, oxygen is considered a pharmaceutical drug, so we have very thorough monitoring of our trials, uh, which, is, uh, which is good in many ways. But really to document that this is safe, I mean, there would be a concern about basal constriction. And I mean, the number of trials we would need to prove that this basal constriction is not really a matter we should have concerns about. That would be a lot, and it would require a lot of patients. And I mean, with this trial, also uh, some great trials uh, performed in the US, other countries, we've come a long way, but in my opinion, I mean, there may still be additional documentation that uh, this intervention give every day is, uh, is not harmful. I agree completely. So, you know, there's, as we've discussed, there's, there's just so much mixed data. There's the AVOID trial, which we talked about, uh, showing worse outcomes in STEMI, but then the detox sweetheart trial, which didn't. There's the IOTA meta-analysis, which showed significantly worse outcomes with uh, increasing levels of FiO2 in the hospital. There's the vision study uh, data, which you said, you know, what you talked about, which also showed a correlation there. And then there's studies like your VIXI trial, which showed no difference. And there's some differences between all of these. Obviously, like we talked about, some are awake patients in the emergency department. Some are uh, like your, like the VIXI trial, patients in the operating room. So, so we talked about some of the reasons why this data might differ. Um, and, and then your very interesting proposals that maybe the sites, the, the other practices happening at those sites may also affect um, what happens. And of course, different trials have different sites. Are there any other factors you think may be playing a role here in terms of why the data is, is all over the map? 
one important future implication is uh, the way we monitor patients after we discharge them from ICU or from the patient because um, the duration of hospital stay and where the complications occur, it's in fact uh, not that common in, in our hands. It's more uh, often in uh, the surgical wards. And um, the way we do monitoring today is manual with several hours in between. And we can see all around the, the globe the number of wearables that's uh, coming. And uh, we will expect in the next years to uh, see much more monitoring also of oxygen saturation. And I think it's very important to carefully evaluate uh, that monitoring and look at what is really important. How do we detect complications after surgery? Can we use wearables in an advanced way to detect complications earlier and also treat them better? I mean, the way we follow patients after surgery, we may or may not detect deviations of upcoming complications and the amount of where we give in to prevent complications or prevent the severity, reduce the severity of complications occurring after surgery. I think that will impact not only patient outcomes, but also how much harm we see from each interventions. One great example is the intervention with the preoperative initiation of beta bloggers to prevent MR. That was actually effective for preventing MI, but it, it increased mortality uh, due to uncontrolled hypotension. And in future hospital settings, we may be able to control hypertension, and then there will be other risk-benefit ratios of the interventions we already know and have uh, an opinion about is this harmful or not. Yeah, absolutely. Really interesting. And, you know, the other thing is that some of these, I mean, in the ICU, right? So we have the ICU ROCS trial and the LOCO2 trial, which showed no difference. But, you know, these were really looking at kind of low versus, you know, either kind of almost hypoxia versus, you know, normoxia or low hyperoxia. And so it's not clear that a hundred percent oxygen versus a you know twenty five percent oxygen would would be the same. So I think just thinking about how the trials are conducted, thinking about like you said, what we can monitor and what we can control. Uh, I love that example of the uh, you know the beta blockers and how if and and I I you know this comes up because people will say to me, oh you know I'll I, I'll tell my residents I often use esmolol with induction instead of fentanyl. And sometimes they'll say, wait a minute, but I thought it wasn't good to give a beta blocker, you know, to a beta blocker naive patient on the day of surgery. And I'll say, you know, yeah, if we were going to give them a massive dose of metoprolol and send them to the floor where they're going to have their vitals checked every four hours, that might be true. Yeah. But we yeah. can give Esmolol in the operating room where we're checking their vitals every second. And, and we can be pretty confident that if they get hypotensive, we can deal with that. So it's a very different scenario. Yeah, interesting. I totally agree with yeah. that. Um, well, fantastic. Anything else, um, Christian, that you think we should keep in mind for future studies that are either already underway or that, that you'd like to see done, either by you or by anybody else? I think a focus on actually combining uh, cardiac and pulmonary outcomes in the same trial would be uh, important. I think uh, many, many of our interventions over
overlap in effects of not only on the cardiac or the vascular system, but also on the pulmonary system. That may be the case for oxygen, but also other trials such as uh, flu trials. Uh, I think it impacts uh, both uh, systems. And I think interventions would be interesting to, uh, to follow with, for, for both in, uh, outcomes at the same time. And of course, uh, I find it fascinating how much we can monitor after PEQ. So uh, I think our specialty may or or may not uh, voluntarily, but but uh, at at some time we must, as anesthesiologists, also look outside our own department and collaborate uh, with the vertical uh, colleagues on how to monitor patients better. Absolutely. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much. Let's turn to the portion of our show where we make random recommendations. Do you have something that you'd like to share with the audience that you think they should check out? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Um, first, I uh, would actually uh, recommend that you just give FiO2.21 to your next patient. Maintain that during surgery. You'll find uh, a lot of uh, very educational experience in ventilatory settings, PEEP, uh, body positioning, respiratory physiology, etc. But um, yeah, so for for the time off, I would actually uh, recommend a Danish uh, TV series that uh, I believe is upcoming on uh, Netflix, and uh, it's called Borg. That's Danish for the castle. Uh, so how do, you, how do you spell it? Yeah, how do you spell the name? B-O-R-G-E-N. Okay, and it means the castle. It means the castle. And the castle is the Danish governmental building. And it's actually a political drama series. Uh, the reason why I mention it is that the, the fourth season is running now. And it has a very interesting uh, view, actually, of uh, the Arctic uh, area uh, with the story of uh, a great uh, oil finding occurring in Greenland. And who should really care about that? Should that be uh, belonging to Greenland or should it be belonging to Denmark or should it be belonging to the U.S.? Or what about investors from Russia or China? So it's a greatly relevant uh, drama in, uh, in these years. And uh, I would recommend uh, seeing this uh, fourth uh, season. I, I think it will uh, occur uh, later this spring on, on Netflix. It's uh, being sent in Denmark at the moment. It's in fact so popular that uh, the main character in the series is a female political leader. And he is now so famous in Denmark uh, the character that uh, most believe that she was, in fact, the first female prime minister of Denmark. Uh, <laughs> wow, that's fantastic. Uh, yeah. Definitely, definitely sounds like something good to check out. Thank you. And I will recommend to folks uh, a book that I read recently uh, that was really fascinating. It's called When We Cease to Understand the World. It's by Benjamin Labatut. Uh, maybe, I may be pronouncing that wrong, but it's L-A-B-A-T-U-T is the author. And it's really interesting. It's a fictional portrait, but of real mathematicians and physicists and their true, real discoveries, 
and and that led them really to kind of the brink of of madness and insanity. And some of the story, you know, is fictional in that he's hypothesizing what they may have experienced or thought, but the discoveries and the and the kind of controversies around the mathematics and the physics that they discovered. So these are people like Heisenberg, for example, and it, and the story of Heisenberg's uncertainty principle and how kind of really just that came to be and how crazy it was to think at the time of, of, of those kind of physics and the beginning of quantum mechanics and quantum physics. And it really drove some people crazy because the, the people who were able to understand this could see it to an extent that it seemed uh, kind of incomprehensible and, and almost madness producing. So it's really well written. It's very, very interesting. Uh, and I highly recommend people check it out. Christian, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been fantastic, and I know people will really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Jeff. Uh, thank you for the opportunity, and I'm very happy to, uh, to have been part of it. It's been a great pleasure. All right. Hopefully you got as much out of that as I did. That was really fantastic. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, akrak.com, where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, you can follow us. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook, we are on Reddit, and we are on Instagram. I'm at Jay Wolpaw on Twitter, and we're at Akrak Podcast, and you can find us on all those other platforms as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Ryan Okonski is our social media manager. And Dr. April Liu is our production assistant. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAC podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.